Patrick Kane able to filter it across. Ryan Suter has it there, threw one that rattled around behind. Pavelski there, slipped one in front. Kane a shot off with the they score! Well, we had a good break. Not as good as Zach Parise. I mean, neither of us signed a close to $100 million contract or anything. I did not, no. But it feels great to be back. Welcome to episode number 26 of the second season of the Sportscasters podcast. It's July 10th, 2012. We're coming to you from Buffalo, New York, after taking one week off to celebrate the independence of the great United States of America. Uh, Last time we were on way back when episode number 25 uh can you even remember at this point on like who was on that show i don't know why but you take one week off and it feels like we've been gone for i don't know longer <laughs> yeah and it uh other than a few signings and stuff it feels like the sports world didn't miss us uh, yeah like, as far as we didn't miss anything really, and we'll get so. to that more but uh the last show we had jeff Passan. Atto Bolden and uh, Rob Mish on the show. And the cool thing about about that show, episode 25, which was the last one we did, the really cool thing was that Bolden then was really out there in the track and field world because of the controversy with the runoff. Which never happened. Which ended up never happening. <laughs> right. But he was the forefront of kind of reporting that, him and our buddy Tim Layden for SI. So it was really cool to have someone who had just been on the show kind of being out there in the spotlight. And I think we got a good boost from that. Maybe we lost some of the momentum being off. Maybe we didn't. doesn't matter because we have a great show back for you today. Jack McCullum, who is a member of the Professional Basketball Hall of Fame, is going to join us to talk about the Book Club Book of the Month for July, which is uh, Dream Team. How Michael Magic, Larry Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed the game of basketball. To be our first interview, and if it's not enough to have a Hall of Fame level basketball writer on the show, we also have a guy that Slate Magazine called in 2003 the greatest sports writer of all time, wow. Gary Smith, uh, who's going to join us to talk about the modern day athlete and whether or not they use their power appropriately in terms of activism. Okay. We're going to talk about that, the modern athlete, and some of the other great works that Gary Smith has written over the years, which equates to 12 appearances in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. Anyone who's listened to this show knows how much we love the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. And actually, we're getting a gala copy of that this year. It's the very first time we're ever going to get a gala copy of any book. Sweet. And I noticed that uh, Glenn Stout had said recently that he's editing the gala copy of the book so we should get it soon which is really cool uh also on the show today ben Ryder is making a second appearance he was on in april to kind of preview the major league baseball season he's going to come on here at the midpoint we're going to talk kind of mid-season awards and look ahead to the second half of the season and also talk about the all-star game so we have a great show lined up also we're going to get back to five on fantasy, but not just mock drafts. We're going to get back to the kind of format of five on fantasy and begin 
what is the preseason, I would suppose, of fantasy football season. Uh, today is going to be the start of that because in less than a month, they're going to be playing preseason games. Yeah, I think the Saints and the Cardinals are in the Hall of Fame game, and I believe I heard it's August 5th. Yep. And those two teams report to camp July 23rd. So you could reasonably be having a fantasy draft in a month or less. Right. So we're going to start kind of our preseason look at fantasy football. And today I guess we're going to focus kind of on what you should be doing now. Right. If some people it's nothing. You know, the casual player, maybe it's enough to the day of the draft, buy a book and show up and go by the rankings. Uh, but some people, that's not enough. The season starts now, so what should they be doing? We'll talk about that in 5 on Fantasy. We're going to update the book club, and we're going to do pick four. I'm 11-0 in the last two weeks, so I'm looking forward to pick four. But wow. uh, there's not much to pick <laughs> in <laughs> pick four. It's, it's slim picking. Uh, but we'll get to that. Before we can do any of that, and I'm really excited to hear for you to hear the Jack McCollum interview we start every show with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, you heard him off the top. Zach Parise is now a rich man along with his buddy Ryan Suter. They both signed in Minnesota uh, to kind of kick off NHL free agency a little bit slowly. Uh, yeah, they took their time, which is rare. Usually the big guys are gone by 3 o'clock. It was more third, fourth line guys and grinders and fighters and stuff that were drafted de- or that were signed day one. Disappointing still, day one. Still a lot of names on the market. Uh, including guys like Shane Doan, Alexander Salmon, mm-hmm. who are uh, both really productive guys. A lot of uh, trade rumors. Trade rumors with like Bobby Ryan and Nash, Nash and all the other names you're always hearing, like uh, Paul Stasny and all these other names. And everyone talks about dominoes and waiting for dominoes to fall. Is Shane Doan the domino? They thought Parise was. But it's been a slow, slow burn this offseason. Kind of cool thing about the Parise and Suter contracts is how they signed for the exact same yeah. years and, same and cap hit. Yep. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I think they went to a great – they're both you know two guys who played on the Olympic um, U.S. Olympic team, went to the state of hockey, which Minnesota calls themselves, right. uh, to maybe turn the Wild into a relevant NHL franchise because they really haven't been one which since they've crazy been back into the league. Considering that market. Right. They, they have good – Fan support, right? They just don't register in the kind of overall landscape because they haven't been any good. And when they were good, they were boring good. Yeah, they, they used they, the goalie tandem of right. Manny Fernandez. They and just weren't exciting. They played the trap and yeah. things like that. So cool. I, I guess it's cool in a way. I'm glad. I'm glad. glad as out a, west. Yeah, as yeah. a Sabres fan, I'm glad they didn't both sign in Pittsburgh or something. Right. It seems like every rumor this year just is assumed that. These big name free agents are just going to sign in Pittsburgh, and I guess it's cool that they don't. Yeah, uh, they want to work for it a little bit, I guess. All right, so my first thing is baseball halfway point. Prince, Prince Fielder won the home run derby last night, defeated uh, Jose Batista in the finals, and that means tonight is the Major League Baseball All Star game, 
And, you know, it's been this way for a while. It counts, Don. It counts. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the winner of it gets to host the first, second, fifth, and seventh game of the World Series, which is four of the seven, including the first and seventh, maybe the most important. Right. Does this game register at all on your sports radar? No. No, not really. I mean, maybe if I were... Did it ever? Did it ever? Boy, when I was younger, I don't know if it had to do with the fact that I collected baseball cards or something. Baseball was way bigger. Maybe it was uh, the branding and, like, Nintendo and stuff with Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball and Bo Jackson and all that. Maybe it was just more star power then. I feel like it meant more to me as a kid. I almost feel like the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is perfect for you when you're 12. Yeah. I remember one year being so excited to see Dave Justice be announced when they announced all the players. And I remember loving that part of it and and watching the game and really caring who the MVP is going to be. Right. It'll be on tonight in my house. I'm going to put it on. Maybe I might not. I'm not going to. Very much doubt I'm going to see all 27 outs on each side. The last one I can remember watching, like that I sat down to watch, was the uh, Cal Ripken Jr. MVP one. Okay. Because a lot was made of that, and I mean, it turned out it lived up to the billing. It was he had a great game and won the MVP of the game. But since then, no, it hasn't been appointment television. But that's the problem in general with baseball. Baseball right now, we've talked with multiple different people about how it should be great. Uh, there's all these young stars. There's, I think, a lot I, of parody. Yeah, and I, I do think they're having their best season they've had in a long time. But if your sport's been in a little bit of a lull, that won't. It takes time right, for that right. momentum to build. You know, you're not just going to be in July when, you know, in a city like Buffalo where there's no major league team and baseball kind of sort of registers, sort of doesn't. You're not just going to have all these stars and overnight everyone wants to watch baseball. Right. And it doesn't help that they don't let us watch Pirates games and Indians games and things like that because they have these old antiquated blackout rules, which are ridiculous. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, but it, it's easy to see that this could be the beginning of, like, a new era of stars in baseball because you've got young pitching and guys like Strasburg. You've got guys... Uh, Trout and Harper. I mean, yeah, those just, guys are going to lead their respective leagues for years. I think it's perfect the way Trout is in... Los Angeles in the American League and Harper's in Washington, Washington in the yeah. National League. They're kind of in opposite coast, opposite leagues, and they have a chance to really, really take Major League Baseball over, you know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's a, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll turn it on tonight. There can't be much better on in the middle of July. Um, my second thing this week, the NBA. Uh, talked about the NHL having a lot of – or kind of being slow with their action. The NBA is has a ton of action going on. Uh, Steve Nash is now a Laker. Yep. Uh, Dwight Howard is expected to be dealt to Brooklyn in kind of their version of what the Heat did. It looks like they're going to try to form like some sort of super team with Dwight Howard and... Uh, Darren Williams. Darren Williams and Joe Thomas. Was he the one that was just traded there? Harden. Oh, Joe Harden. Mm-hmm. And Ray Allen also leaves the Celtics to join the Heat. So a lot of moving in basketball. And this made me think about... A little bit. The NBA has, I believe, a soft salary cap. Yep. Uh, you get you can get more money if you stay. Right. You, you know the the person who owns the rights of a free agent can offer him more money than anyone else. But that said, baseball is always knocked for having no salary cap and having hockey no parity. Hockey has a hard cap. Right. Hockey, football have a hard cap. Basketball might have least 
less parity, and I haven't looked at numbers of this, so somebody that's a statistician might be able to tell me about this, but really, there's there's just going to be super teams, it looks like. If players decide to go certain places, you're going to have teams like the Lakers, the Heat, uh, Brooklyn now. And, you know, I think one thing about basketball, too, is if you are bad, it's hard to get good. It takes a while. You need to, unless you can get, like, a megastar at the top of the draft. Right. You know, like, if you can get... Blake Griffin is yeah, a good example. Right. But even the Clippers, they were bad for a long time. Right. You know, it takes a while. If you get in salary cap hell in that sport, it's hard to get out of it. Yeah, but I mean, I would just it made me think of that how much baseball is knocked for a lack of parity because of the spending differences. Boston, I believe, is second last in the AL right now, and they're Philadelphia spends a ton of money. Yeah, is talking about selling their team off. <laughs> yeah, so basketball is a problem. Maybe baseball doesn't. Maybe you're going to see a, a flip here. I don't know. Maybe people love these super teams. Maybe this. Maybe this is good for the sport. I mean, the ratings good for, for the, the final were great. It's not good for the Toronto Raptors or the. Cavaliers or anybody, but maybe for the sport in general, maybe th- maybe this is great. And my second thing, I'm sticking right with Don in the NBA. Two more things that kind of emerged today. One is that Blake Griffin, who you mentioned, oh yeah, yeah, uh, it was just extended by the Clippers, uh, ninety-five million dollar, a five-year contract extension uh, worth ninety-five million dollars. Uh, this is according to ESPNLosAngeles.com. Uh, Griffith could earn as much as $95 million over the course of the five-year extension if he is voted an all-star starter again or named a second all-NBA team next season under the so-called Derrick Rose rule in the new collective bargaining agreement. The rule allows a player finishing his rookie contract to make 30% of a team's salary cap up from 25% if he's twice been voted an all-star game starter or twice been voted All-NBA or won an MVP award. So, again, <laughs> this is the soft cap yeah. coming into play and making exceptions. Uh, and also, my second thing, second piece of NBA news, is there was some talk that maybe if the Spurs had won the championship, that that would maybe mean the end of Tim, Tim Duncan, Duncan yeah. and him kind of sailing off. Well, today, uh, the 36-year-old Duncan agreed to three more years with the Spurs. One other thing I wanted to mention about this, Don, is... The NBA has a period of time before free agency begins where teams can start negotiating and talking about deals. And you hear about deals, but then they're not official for a while. Where the NHL, you can't talk to the person at all, quote-unquote, until that time. Right. What do you think about those two differences? And kind of, you think the NHL should go to that where there's a week beforehand where teams can talk? This way it builds that excitement for July 1st? Yeah, absolutely. And... The local example of that would be Buffalo with Mario Williams. Now, bu- football doesn't have this rule either, but Buffalo managed to get Mario Williams somehow to fly out here. And never leave. And they just right. kept him. They made sure he never left. Well, maybe if you give them a week or whatever in advance, you get a little bit of a period where these teams can try to be recruited by teams. Uh, as a small market fan, I would appreciate that a lot because I think there's misconceptions about markets. I'm sure there's... It's not just Buffalo. I'm sure Cleveland, uh, any small markets, maybe Detroit, maybe people have their, not that it's a small market, but it doesn't have the best image nationwide, Detroit. But maybe those teams would have a better chance if they were given some time to wine and dine these players a little bit. And it's probably better for the players, too. You're actually seeing now in the NHL, players 
taking their sweet time to make these decisions because these are lifetime contracts they're signing. All righty, my last thing this week. Congratulations to Roger Federer making a little bit of Wimbledon history. Great Wimbledon this year, I thought. Yeah, I didn't see much of it, but from all accounts, it was great. I read a lot about it on Twitter. Uh, He reached a record eighth final and won for the seventh time. Andy Murray was the first Brit in 74 years to make it to the finals. So that was exciting for them. And uh, Serena Williams, congratulations to her as well, wins her fifth Wimbledon title. couple interesting things here. One, Serena Williams in the last major was out in the first round. Yeah, so good for right. her to bounce back and win. Not sure if it's happened before where someone has lost in the first round of a major and then won the next major, but really cool story there. Also cool about her, she won two Wimbledon championships in the same day. Her and her sister oh, won, won the doubles. doubles. Right. Kind of a cool day. Yeah. Uh, the tickets for the Murray Federer match, twenty five pound twenty five thousand pounds, about thirty six thousand US dollars. Thousand or hundred? Thousand. Wow. Yep. Tickets were going for as much as that to see that match. Wow. Um, so I thought that was pretty crazy. And also heard a really cool story about a guy who made a bet that Federer would win I seven Wimbledons that. by a certain year, I think 2019. I think. He won that bet, but he's dead. He's dead. He so it went to his estate, which meant a charity. He, he left the ticket to a charity. Yeah, I read that article too, and I had never even – I didn't know you could make those type of bets. But apparently maybe it's more common overseas, but they gave a list in this article – of all different bets that people have placed, like on race car drivers from like that are nine years old, they're placing bets that they're going to win before they're however old. Or Super place, cool. People are placing bets on their own kids that they would play for uh, the English Premier I, League or I whatever. guess while he was alive, Federer had one chance to win it, but lost to Nadal in an epic five-set match. <laughs> so unfortunately, he didn't get to see his ticket be cashed, but kind of a cool little story yeah, there. Yeah. All right, my third thing today... It's a small thing, but it, it caught my eye, and we'll talk with Ben Ryder about it later and see what he thinks. The other night, other day, Zach Greinke, starting pitcher for the Brewers, starts off, gives off a uh, leadoff lead double, I believe. Guy gets to third base. He gets two outs, and there's a ground ball hit, and Greinke's got to cover first base, and it's essentially a race between Granke and the batter okay. to get to first base. Granke loses. Basically, it was a tie, which goes to the runner. To the runner right. Ref or ump call him safe. Right call. Uh, and Granke turned around and threw the ball into the turf. Didn't say a word. Ump threw Granke out of the game. <laughs> Granke turns around and is like, no, no, no. I'm mad at myself. He was frustrated about the way the first inning had gone and that he lost the race. Right, right. He wasn't complaining about the call. Oh, okay. And I think the ump perceived Granke by throwing the ball down was maybe showing him up. But I thought it was a pathetic job by the umpire. Did he overturn it? Obviously not. No, and he ended up throwing the manager out too. Wow. The funny thing about this is Granke is one of the most rumored guys to be moved at the trade deadline, and apparently the stadium was packed with scouts who were there to see his last start before the All-Star game. He pitched two-thirds of an inning. That's hilarious. I just got to say, if you're going to be an umpire or a referee at that level, you have got to have thicker skin than that. You cannot. And so what if Zach Grinke showed you up a little bit by throwing the ball into the dirt? 
He didn't right. say a word. He didn't swear. He didn't touch him. And if Grinky explains himself away, like, I believe it was Deadspin, so I hope I'm giving credit to the right source, but they had an article about this uh, first baseman bobbled a throw from, I believe, third. And the first base umpire was kind of blocked because the ball was kind of at, in the guy's stomach. Uh, he, the guy bobbled it. The, the runner touched the bag, and he called him out. And the team was kind of like, no way, that's crazy or whatever. And they got together with the other umpires, like the home plate umpire, and they overturned the call. And Deadspin, like their joke was, umpire overturns call, the world doesn't end or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, right. Why couldn't they overturn that? If Grinky explained it and he's like, all right, man, just just cool down the ump next was being time. a dick. Yeah, that's why. I mean, the ump had like a little – he's just like a walking penis. He has like stupid <laughs> look on his face and he's just being an asshole. And it's like, look at baseball is trying to build themselves around stock. No one was in the ballpark that day to see this up. Right. I mean, Zach Greinke yeah, you shouldn't is be a, part of the game. Zach Greinke is a guy that I would pay to go see Zach Greinke pay, play. I'd love to watch that. I'd be pissed off if I traveled to a Major League Baseball game to see Zach Greinke pitch. He's thrown out of the game for throwing the ball in the dirt. <laughs> I mean, I would understand if you threw him out because he bumped you. Or, you know, it's clear you can't argue balls and strikes. Right. Okay, fine. Something like that. But just the hook was... What about, like, Bo Jackson used to break bats over his... Like, that would have to be... He would get thrown out all game with this right. player. And that was just him being mad at himself. He right. broke his bat. He struck out. Pathetic. And I, I just... As soon as I seen it, I, I wrote it down as I wanted to be one of my three things. Just kind of wanted to bring it up. It's because it, it just... It just pissed me off. Yeah, umpires, it's not It's not about you. You want to be, you want to officiate, the, you want to be like a judge. You want to officiate the game. You don't want to, you don't want to determine it or you don't want to be a part of it. All right. So that's it for three things today. Uh, it's good to be back. I'm pumped to be back. Let's get this show going. Take a break. Now, we've been on a good run with this. Uh, a couple months ago, we had Roy McGregor. As the author of one of our book club books of the month, he's going to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in November. So that was really cool. And now we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with an NBA Hall of Famer, Zach McCollum. Our first guest today resides from Bethlehem, PA, and is a graduate of Mullenberg College with a master's from Lehigh University. He has worked at four newspapers, and in 1981, he started at Sports Illustrated, where he famously covered the NBA. He is the author of nine books, including his newest about the famous Dream Team. He is a winner of the Kurt Gowdy Award, given annually by the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame for outstanding basketball writing. He's one of the most accomplished writers to ever appear on the podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Jack McCollum. How's it going, Mr. McCollum? Pretty good. Very good. Really excited to have you on the show today. Uh, we love sports books on this podcast. Um, we uh, have a book club book of the month, which this month we're featuring your book, uh, Dream Team, how Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the greatest team of all time conquered the world and changed basketball, the game of basketball forever. And it's it, it feels every couple of months it feels like there's a, a sports book that comes out that we get really excited for. Like maybe when the ESPN book was coming out, we were looking forward to that one. 
Um, this one, and I think after this one, the next one we're all going to be looking forward to is uh, Mr. Pisanansky's book about Joe Paterno, just to see how that turned out. Yeah. But I guess for a guy who's written nine nine books now, my first question for you is, what made you want to go into this project specifically? Well, I'd like to say that uh, I was very smart about it, but I was too dumb to even think of the idea. And about a couple of years ago, it was probably 2009, an editor from Random House called me up and said, hey, it's in, in 2012, it's going to be 20 years since the Dream Team. Do you think that would be a book? And you know, it took me about two minutes to say I thought that it would be. Uh, I didn't think of the idea. And now that it's over, I mean, I guess I would say this anyway, but I truly do believe this is like the right amount of time. It's sort of like 10 years would have been too soon that their lives had not played out. And 30 years would have been too long. I mean, now you have these guys are still have cultural primacy. You know, they're still running basketball teams. Larry just walked away. But Magic's in the public eye. Uh, you know, Jordan is in the public eye. Bird was. None of these guys have gone away. Your generation knows them. And they have a perspective on things from 20 years ago that they, uh, you know, that they, they didn't uh, before. So I think it was the perfect time, but it was not my idea. I just followed up on it. You know, it's interesting because the NBA Network had a documentary that they aired a few weeks ago, which... You- you are awesome, man, by the way, uh, about the Dream Team. How did you feel about there being a documentary about the same subject shortly before your book came out? Have you felt like it's increased uh, anticipation for that, or do you think some people have kind of taken the attitude of, well, I saw the movie? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, they set, they, they set publishing dates kind of arbitrarily, well, not arbitrarily, but they, they had this idea that they would bring the book out after the finals that we wanted to get the finals done with and we wanted to sort of be in the olympic season you know the beginning of it so that seemed logical from the beginning honestly i thought it was a little bit late because i had the idea people don't pick up a book in the summer and if they do you know they're reading janet ivanovich on the beach which which i've done that's fine i'm not making so but then what happened was that the nba documentary came along uh which I, you know, had, I didn't have anything to do with it, but I, I had started reporting my book, and I really gave them a lot of leads. I mean, I think they would even say that themselves, you know, not that they wouldn't have done a great job anyway. So I think in retrospect, we all sort of wished that the next day you could have bought, <laughs> you could have bought the book too. Right. Uh, my guess is it'll still be, it'll still be okay, and... You know, it's done very well in pre-sales, and I know this sounds like something that an author would say, but honestly, the last thing you're thinking about is, you know, how many books you're going to sell. You're, you're trying to write a good book, and the information that comes out about sales and controversies and all that, you really hope that it sort of goes away, and at the end of the day, a lot of people read it just because they thought it was a good book. You know, it's interesting you mentioned kind of pre-sales, and... I, I every night I'm on my iPad for too long, um, and occasionally I like to go to iBooks and just kind of look through the sports book section just to see. And I've noticed your book, kind of you know, twentieth ranked book for pre-order, thirteenth, you know, ten. So finally last night I noticed it was available for download. It was past midnight, and 
it was in the number one spot. I, it kind of just made me want to ask you about ebooks and the role that ebooks play in the in the publishing landscape now, and kind of how you feel about it. I love it. The only thing I don't like, I've said before, is I, I can't bring my iPad and have you sign it. Really, yeah. But, well, uh, you yeah. know, anything that comes along new for somebody my age, uh, you know, which is sixty three years old, your default position is. To begin with, oh, my God, that's not as good as when we, oh, it was better when we wrote long stories in Sports Illustrated. It was better when we wrote in the typewriter. It was better than when there wasn't Twitter. Well, in point of fact, you better make that transition. You better get used to it. Nothing goes back. You know, so right now I created a website with a blog and tweeted about it to get people to the website. So, I can't say anything anymore about, well, those athletes are just sending out their own message on Twitter. And, you know, I get it. Ebooks are a part of that. And as a matter of fact, I'm working on an ebook. I mean, my agent started an ebook company. And I'm doing a kind of compilation of stuff from Sports Illustrated. It's the, this thing in the front called This Week Sign the Apocalypse is Upon Us. And you I invented that, that right? yeah. rubric like 20 years ago. And. So I had the idea to do a book about it, you know, kind of update some of them and make it funny and sort of a light read. And my agent sold it as an ebook. So I'm now an ebook right? <laughs> yeah, I think it literally closes like today, which is the same day the Dream Team book is on sale. So I am a uh, I am a prostitute in both uh, areas. <laughs> you know, I got I got ebook and uh, and I have a uh, a regular book. You know, one thing, one thing that I really got the sense of when reading this book is that writing it for you seemed like, I don't want to say, a, this is so generic, I don't want to say like a trip down memory lane, but I could feel you remembering covering these things originally and kind of expressing the joy that you got out of covering the dream team. I, like, I could just kind of feel you recapping in, in parts of the book, kind of like putting us where you were that day and and how incredible some of the things you got to witness through this dream team were. Is that kind of unique to this book? Yeah, I mean, I kind of made the decision early. I almost found myself, I wrote the prologue because I knew I had this great story in the prologue about getting my picture half wanting to do right. it and half wanting to sink into the earth. And it just seemed to set up everything that was about this team, that that you sort of had to examine the phenomenon from a first-person aspect. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the ones able to do that. So I wrote this first-person prologue. It was the first thing I wrote. And I remember talking over my editor with it, and he said something to me. He said, I said, that's ah, first-person. I hate first-person. You know, I'm just a little bit resistant to it. These guys are the most famous guys in the world. What do they want to – and he said, look, you can't help it. You were along for the ride. That was his expression. And that became kind of my guiding light, sort of. You know, I was somebody just by pure dint of luck that was along for the ride. And a lot of people were not along for the ride. And I thought I could do this better if I kind of presented it. You know, you obviously step back when you have to. I mean, right. you know, these guys can speak for themselves. But I just thought it brought a kind of new perspective uh, to, to being able to sell that idea that you're on a little bit of a trip through memory lane with me, and I, you know, hope you enjoy it. I gotta say, I, you made a great decision in in doing that because that totally, totally comes through in the book, and it was one of my favorite 
parts about it because like you said you don't get a lot of first person necessarily in sports books and for good reason and you know i can i can think of even being in college and getting a paperback saying you know cross off all the eyes that are in this and and rewrite those sentences but it just it just worked in this case i don't want to spend well, a, okay go, yeah you're gonna sorry about that yeah i was going to say the other thing that you know i wanted to make the point was that um uh, you know, I, I was about how fortunate I was. I mean, I'm not going to go crazy with self-modesty. I mean, I, I knew what I was doing. You know, I know my way around an adjective and an adverb. But let's face it, nobody's talking about it. Nobody knows, I mean, everybody, nobody knows my name if I wasn't covering uh, the Dream Team. I mean, you had you mentioned you had Gary Smith on. Gary has sort of made his way at Sports Illustrated by the brilliance of these long exploratory articles. I, you know, which wasn't my inclination in the beginning to just cover one sport, came along, you know, at a time when this, when basketball, the NBA was just taken off. And, you know, I sort of was able to take off with it. That was my fortunate place to be. And I kind of wanted to, you know, a number of times express that in the book, you know, that, you know, I was a slight accident of timing and how really fortunate I am to have, uh, you know, been associated with these guys. You know, we're from Buffalo, so might as well just do this and, and, and get it out of the way. Uh, obviously, Christian Leitner grew up about, oh, about 20 miles south of uh, Buffalo, about a half an hour from where I'm sitting right now. And if there's anyone who is maybe fortunate to be along for the ride, it was him. Tell us a little bit about Christian Leitner's role in this book and with the Dream Team and kind of, you know, him being picked over maybe Shaq or some of the guys who played against them in that famous scrimmage that Coach K says that uh, Chuck Daly threw. Um, tell us a little bit about Leitner and kind of his role in all this. Well, the first thing I want to make absolutely clear is that Christian Leitner, under the stipulation of the time, absolutely belonged on that team. You have to understand the long history. They went from having... 12 college guys, okay, there's a new system here. Well, we'll get six NBA guys. We'll probably be six and six. Well, now it's probably going to be eight and four. Well, now suddenly they started realizing how the NBA guys they were going to leave off. They decided on 11 to one. So they were going to pick one collegian. In my opinion, I said so in the book, blogs, interviews, wherever, Christian was the best college basketball player at that time. They were not picking who's going to be better in the pros. Right. They were not picking who's the more delightful personality. We all know that person was Shaquille. That wasn't what they were doing. So I feel no problem with defending Christian Leitner's selection. Christian at that time, though, was a pain in the butt. I mean, he, you know, we all the, it was mostly NBA guys that were writing about this that were sort of on the inner circle. So we knew Magic. We knew Michael. We knew Larry Bird. They knew us. We got quotes from them. So we go to Christian Leitner, this 21-year-old kidney treats us like dirt. So I thought he was an ass. I mean, I'll be honest with you. And uh, 20 years later, what I write in the book is I find myself torn. I'm trying to, like Christian, I'm trying to see that he's trying to be a better person. He really is. He's trying to make something. You know, he's had some business setbacks, and he's had some things happen to him that changed the big man on campus aspect for him and all that has made a difference in who he is but i had no recourse but to present it kind of as it is and i'm sure the portrait that emerges of him i don't know what 
you thought is partially negative, but I I thought that it reflected reality. But believe me, I didn't uh, I didn't do this to hurt anybody. I was just trying to reflect the reality as I saw it. It's so interesting because a guy who obviously was one of the great college players of all time, disastrous pro career in 2012, ends up in being a huge part of two of the biggest sports books of the year. And <laughs> Duke, your, yeah, Gene's Duke yeah, book, yeah, your book and Gene's book. So it's kind of kind of crazy. But um, one of the great things that kind of came out from looking deeper into this, and I, I just mentioned a second ago, in terms of the documentary in your book, is the story of how the very one of the very first times the team was on the court together, they played a group of college kids, lost the first game, won the second game. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned that day about how you guys were kind of waiting to get in, and, and then you get in, and the scoreboard's clear, and what was kind of the vibe around the team that day when they were defeated by the, uh, by the college kids? It, it seems like a really interesting part of all this. The vibe was uncertain. Uh, the vibe was, you know, sort of half laughing. I mean, nobody, we didn't walk in and they start going, hey, we got our ass kicked by the college. That wasn't going to happen. I mean, the story kind of came out gradually. And, you know, people were, th- these were the type of guys. I mean, this is Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson. They're not going to go, we're afraid of Bobby Hurley. Nevertheless, despite what Coach K, who, by the way, was a great resource for my book, I mean, Coach K's institutional memory of this thing is incredible. I mean, it rivals mine. It's better than any of the players. He was fantastic. His statement, though, that Chuck threw the game is, in my opinion, vastly exaggerated. Now, Coach K saw the game and I didn't, but I've been reconstructing it, and I saw a video of the game. And yes, Michael Jordan did not play as many minutes as he could, but those college kids exposed a couple things that needed to be cleaned up from the Dream Team. Number one, perimeter defense that Magic Johnson at that point in his career was not going to stop quick guards like Bobby Hurley. They were going to be able to get into the lane and dish out. And number two, the dream team was so intent on not overpassing and not being, you know, egotistical and not bringing individual team habits to the dream team that they just passed the ball way too much. And they decided that they needed to compromise between their setup patterns. Hey, we need to isolate Barkley on the low post. We need to get Michael over here coming off of a screen and make sure he shoots a jump shot. They started compromising that, making a compromise between that and the team game. And the next day, I mean, they simply, you know, blew them away. I mean, Jordan guarded Hurley. He couldn't get the ball to midcourt. But that was necessary, and the college kids did exactly what they were supposed to do. They played like a European team. They came in there, and they sent a message and yes, the U.S. would have still won the gold medal without that game, but it was still a very important day, in my opinion, of the evolution of that dream team. Just curious, do you think that that team, the college kids, could have won a medal at the Olympics? No, no, I do not. I, I just when I when you got over there, uh, you just saw. You know, I know it's a cliche, but they were men. You know, they're, they're men that they're playing against. They're playing against right. Sharunas Marshallonis, who had been in the NBA who had carved out this kind of hardcore career, you know, in the Soviet Union. Nobody trained harder than those guys. And if you look back on it, it's very interesting. I mean, Bobby, who looked 20, who looked 18 when he was 28, looks about 12. I mean, Grant Hill is skinny. Chris Webber is skinny. Eric Montrose was their sort of bull guy. 
And, you know, Carl Malone could have picked him up and put him through the basket with one <laughs> hand. So it, you, you knew that they wouldn't. Uh, and even Grant Hill, you know, talked to me a long time about the book, and he, he doesn't want to say that they wouldn't have won the gold medal, but in, he, he really doesn't think that they would have, you know, that they just weren't, quote, mature enough. Uh, there's a lot in the book about the decision not to have Isaiah Thomas on the team. There's a little bit in the book about Clyde Drexler being the last NBA player picked and maybe a little bit of resentment he has about that. Do you think that there was anyone left off the team that should have been on the team, or do you think ultimately they got the right guys there? Well, I mean, the proof would be in the pudding that they got the right guys there, but I wrote at the time and still believe, and yet this is kind of a hard thing to explain because I agree with their decision to leave Isaiah off the team, which was based on the fact, in my opinion, that it almost comes down to simply they were they could not risk losing Michael Jordan. And as I wrote in the book, in the summer of 1992, or any other summer, who are you going to pick between Jordan and Isaiah? Honestly, it, it's a hands-tied type of thing. However, I'd, having said that, I think Isaiah Thomas deserved to be on that team. That's saying, that's talking out of both sides of my mouth. Don't ask me to say who he was going to replace but I thought at the height of his career at that time that Isaiah Thomas was a better player than John Stockton. John went on to have seven more great years. Isaiah was out of the league in two years. You know, he had an Achilles injury, and I believe he only had two more years. John played, you know, until the end of the century and was terrific. But you're asking me in 1992, Isaiah Thomas was good enough to be on that dream team. You know, it's funny because I was 12 in 1992 and one thing I remember quite a bit about this team when I was 12 I still really you know loved to go to McDonald's you know home for summer vacation mom can we go to McDonald's for lunch and I remember there was uh McDonald's was one of the big tie-ins to dream team and ever since then you know every four years there's been another quote-unquote dream team uh some of them have won gold medals I think there's at least one disaster in there and this year they're getting ready to send another dream team to the Olympics. Seems like one of the better ones that they've sent in a while. What do you think about this year's uh, Olympic team and, and kind of how they – well, forget about how they compare to the 92 team. It doesn't matter. But what do you think about this year's Olympic team and, and kind of where they fit in in the dream team landscape? Well, the first thing I always think about them is, and I thought this with the 2008 team, which was a terrific team. I mean, they finally, the 2004 team was a disaster right. that you're referring to. I mean, the defensive backcourt was Iverson and Marbury, which you and I go through and hit jump shots. I mean, come on. That's the worst defensive team in the Olympics. And then 2008 had a tough task. And by then, LeBron was mature. Dwayne Wade was mature. They had Kobe. They did a fantastic job. This is not an easy task for 2012. I mean, they go into this as, at best, in my opinion, co-favorites. I mean, they're no, no longer are the best guys on the other team good European players. They're NBA players. So it's a very tough task for them, having said that. The 2012 team, I mean, I wrote on my blog that don't ask me to say who would be eliminated from the, two, from the 92 team. But certainly four guys from that team are dream team type of players, and that is Kobe Bryant for the length and breadth of his career, uh, LeBron James because whatever we said about him beforehand, the guy had an immortal 
playoff series and sure is by did. far the best player in the league. Dwayne Wade, because he's a warrior and he won an NBA championship by himself, and Kevin Durant, because one day he's probably going to pass, uh, barring injury, you know, Abdul-Jabbar is the all-time leading scorer. I mean, those four guys, you're talking about four guys, you know, that are going to go into the Hall of Fame, and they are that dream team type of level player. What's missing from them is a dominant interior player, even if Dwight Howard was going to play. So there's the difference between the essential difference, in my opinion, between '92 and 2012, is that the the U.S. interior game would just kill them from '92. I mean, they had we don't even talk about Ewing, David Robinson, Carl Malone on the Dream Team. They were secondary personalities, but I mean, these were some of the greatest interior players there ever was. And in that respect, there's no comparison to them and the contemporary game. You know, you mentioned how they're the players in the tournament, the non-U.S. teams are no longer just European players, they're NBA players. Do you think that we're starting to see an effect that the Dream Team had on world basketball? I mean, obviously the teams that they played, they wanted pictures, they wanted autographs, they were in awe of these guys. Do you think that that specific team had a role in growing the sport internationally? Absolutely, and I didn't really start to think about that until I did the book. I started thinking, well, the last the last thing I got to deal with is the influence. What's, what is the impact of this team? And so I started talking to Dirk Nowitzki uh, about it, talked to Manu Ginobili, talked to a couple guys who were playing in 92, but were now coaching a guy from named Oranga from Spain. And it was interesting that we all thought that the whole world would look at this. And what we cover the most is, Oh my God, isn't this great? this kind of pornographic attention bestowed upon them. Well, that was going on, but something else was going on too. And that was 14-year-old Dirk Nowitzki was looking at this, and you said you were 12. Ginobili was 12. Tony Parker was 11. Heidu Turkoglu was 14 or 15. Okor was 14 or 15. They're looking at it a different way. And the, the word I've been using is demystified. The game became kind of demystified to them. They looked at it, and they saw great players but they saw that they do the same things. You know, Jordan comes down, he, he goes right, he backs up, he spins, he takes a fallback jumper. Okay, he does that 100 times better than me. Maybe if I practice, he does it 10 times better than me. Well, now he does it five times better than me. So that really opened up a whole world to these guys. Suddenly the thought of, there it is. We can be there. We can be on that stage. I think it had an enormous, enormous effect. And if you talk to the NBA people that deal with international players. It is the number one reason by far, you know, ahead of like television broadcasts or better coaching or clinics, you know, that the dream team is the singular most important thing in the development of the international game. Okay, a couple last things. Uh, Charles Barkley is one guy who kind of sticks out as mentioning that this is maybe – his the one thing maybe he's most proud of having not won a championship. He you know his goal, he he said it you know winning the gold medal is huge for me. But there's other guys on the team who have won many gold medals, all of them I think except for Leitner in the Hall of Fame. In general, where do these guys rank this experience? Uh, incredibly at the top, and there's only two exceptions to that. One of them is Michael, 
who makes a distinction between that and 1984. Michael won was, right. was the best player on the gold medal winning team in L.A. in 84. It was new. He was a kid. He blew up then. He, he, was, he was the guy. He was the new. It was new to him. So to Michael, it, you know, nothing compared to 84. I mean, that was the beginning of the – it wasn't the beginning of the phenomenon, but when he finally got out of good old Dean Smith's clutches, you know, he was able to be who he was. So Michael was different, and I asked Larry that question, and Larry Bird said that he has to make a distinction between the NBA championships and the Olympics. He didn't say which is better, but he makes a distinction. Everybody else that I asked the question, at the top. And that includes Magic Johnson, who won five titles, three MVP awards. I'm sure he was MVP of two of those finals anyway. He may not have been the third one. And he by far puts the Olympic experience on top. That actually did surprise me in retrospect. Uh, Mully said the same thing. Uh, Carl uh, Malone said the same thing. Charles said the same thing. I can't remember if I asked everybody, but the sense I got was that this was number one. All right, last thing. So in anticipation for the book, you mentioned, you know, in the beginning, you got the blog, you got the Twitter. It's at M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M-12. Tell us about what Twitter's been like for you so far. How, how do you like it? And do you see yourself once kind of the promotional aspect for the book dies down, kind of sticking with it and uh, maybe using it for different things? And where do you see Jack McComb and Twitter kind of going from here? <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, I'm going to the Olympics for the NBC uh, website, so I can't think of, honestly, a richer platform from which to tweet about. So that's probably, you're probably going to have to deal with me at least through August, the <laughs> middle of August. And I found it a lot more interesting than I thought. I mean, I try not to make, I try to make one out of every three, not about the book or basketball, you know, maybe about politics or music or something like that. And so I see it as a forum that I would, uh, that I would continue doing, you know. So. Well, we definitely look forward to following you on there. Again, the book is called uh, Dream Team, How Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball. Uh, thank you so much for doing the show. We really appreciate it. You can find Jack on Twitter, like we said, at M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M-12. Uh, just in one word or two, do you think that we're going to have a goal, another basketball gold, or what's your prediction for the team this summer? I would not want to say they're not going to win the gold gold medal. So I'll I'll say that yes, there will be another gold medal, but it's going to be it's going to be very hard and much much harder than the original dream team. Put it that way. So don't criticize them if they don't win, because trust me, it's a different world out there than it was 20 years ago. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It really was a, a true honor for us, and uh, we love the book. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Take Th it easy. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we want to thank the great Jack McCollum for making his first appearance on the podcast. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. I never thought, I don't know, I guess I never really envisioned a time where we'd be frigging interviewing Hall of Famers. <laughs> That's right. It's awesome. Uh, the Book Club Book of the Month for July, since this is our first show in July, of course, is the book that we just talked about with Jack, uh, Dream Team, How Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball. And I guess I just want to say this one more thing about it. 
like Jack isn't on the line anymore. So if I thought this book sucked, I, I think I'd say it. This book is awesome. Yeah. I'm not the biggest basketball fan. People who listen know. Right. But this book is awesome. It's just it's a great book. It's totally worth your time. So it's going to be the book club book of the month for July. But since we've already talked to Jack, the book club is going to kind of not have a huge role in the podcast the next couple of weeks. Right. Each week we'll come on for two or three minutes and say that Jack's book is the book club book of the month because that's what we do agree to do with the publisher. Right. In the to get the right to get a copy of the book and to have Jack on, but. I mean, for uh, for a large sense, we're kind of done with it. But it's July too, and how much do people want to sit around and read in July? You <laughs> right. know, maybe not much anyway. But uh, you know, the next kind of where we go from here. I mean, really, the the next thing is going to be Poznanski's Paterno book. I mean, that's right, the, right. that's the end of August, so it'll probably be the book club book of the month for September, not August. So it comes out like. I think literally August 30th or something like that. So we'll pick something else out. I'm sure something will come up that will be released earlier in August. That will be our book club book of the month for August or something that is going to be released later in this month. But I think really the, like it's all kind of building towards the paternal book. Right. You know, and I mentioned on the last podcast, I talked to the publisher and it is an embargo and it's going to be our first book club book of the month since the ESPN book that was in embargo. Okay. Which means we're not going to get it all that early. We'll probably get it August 25th or something like that because they're going to do their best to keep it away. And I think that's because pretty much anyone who's anyone is going to want to know what Joe wrote, you know, and how that book changed based on everything that happened I mean, he was just going up there to live a year thinking he's going to talk about a legend, talk about a legend, and he right. walks away, and maybe the guy's a, a villain. Right, yeah. So that's about where we're at. Um, Read the Dream Team. Yeah, it's a great, it's, it's, it's worth it. It's a great book. All right, uh, we'll take a break, and we're going to come back with Slate Magazine's greatest sports writer of all time. That's, that's their quote, Gary Smith. Our next guest is from Delaware and is a graduate of LaSalle University. He has worked as a sports writer for the Wilmington News Journal, the Philadelphia Daily News, the New York Daily News, and Inside Sports before joining Sports Illustrated in 1983. For years, Smith has authored lengthy bonus pieces for SI, including many in-depth personality pieces. He is the winner of the National Magazine Award for Nonfiction and has had his work published in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology a record 12 times. He's one of the greatest sports writers of all time, and we are proud to have him on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Gary Smith. How are you doing today, Mr. Smith? Great. Thank you very much. You know, it's so cool to have you on because, you know, we, we've had so many guys from SI on, but I think you, 
you're very unique in the sense that what you do at SI is almost different than what any other writer in just about any magazine across the country does. I mean, you focus on these really long pieces that you do about quarterly or so. And you've been doing this for a very long time. And it's almost like, you know, things like Best American Sports, they, it's almost like they wait for these things to come out. You know, there's like an anticipation. And, and I'm sure that the work that goes into each piece is, is, is incredible. But tell us a little bit about how you do what you do at SI and kind of like what kind of things you look for in terms of what you're willing to devote a quarter of the year on professionally. Yeah, well, I you know look for stories that have some real ripples to them, and that's kind of just an instinctive thing. You know, you, you hear about something, you read something, it could be just a couple sentences in a newspaper or just a reference to something, and if it just feels like there's got to be some legs to that that could, you could use to, to travel seven, 8,000 words, uh, then and it's something that, you know, sparks some kind of uh, flame in me that I'll just uh, throw it out there to the editors at SI, and if they are agreeable, um, I'll go, well, you know, off, I'm off and running. It's some, probably half the ideas come from them and half from me, and as long as we both agree, there we go. And so uh, then I'll just jump into it and spend, you know, maybe a week and a half hanging around with somebody and learning all about their life, talking to everybody that's in their life and uh, trying to really get inside of what's, what's, what makes them tick and, and what, you know, what, what they face in their lives, it uh, kind of shaped who they've become. And uh, then, you know, that after I come back, then I go over my notes and that takes a couple weeks to really go through that carefully and come through the stuff and, and as I'm doing that, uh, usually uh, something will cr- start to crystallize in, in my mind about what, for me, is the real heartbeat of the story. And um, that's the, the aspect of it that I'll usually just try to kind of create as the axis of the story. And and once I discover that, that often means a lot more phone calling to kind of really um, buttress stuff that... Uh, that now my instincts are starting to tell me is, you know, at the center of the story, of the story the way I feel like it should be approached. And so that takes a good bit more of phone calling and probably wear people out a lot of times with the amount of phone calls and uh, follow-up stuff that I do. And after all that, uh, then, then try to crystallize in my mind, you know, what I really want to say with this piece and then how I can try to say it and show it, not not say it so much. And so uh, that starts to give me some feel for the structure of it. And so then, you know, then I'm into the writing phase of it. Um, and, uh, you know, that's several weeks more, or up to a month more for that, just going over it every day. As soon as I get up, you know, as soon as I sit down to write, I'm just kind of start from the top and start combing through, through it and, and, uh, just keep working it, reworking it, chiseling it, and rechiseling it. So that's kind of just a, gives you a little idea what what the approach is on these things. Do you ever get, I don't know, maybe past that initial stage and, and you're you're getting your notes together and you just say, "Wow, this just this just isn't here. There just isn't an eight thousand word story here like we thought." And then maybe have to go like into scramble mode to 
to find something different? Um, you know, something you seems to always grab me. You know, I'll, I'll keep 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 looking till the find that window into it that really kind of lights that fire for me. And and I, I don't think I've ever just you know pulled the plug and said no. Nah, there's yeah, and it may have happened. There's been a lot of stories. So I, I can't say that categorically, but uh, if it has, it's uh, it's been very rare and escaped my mind. You know, it's interesting because you know some of these stories they end up in best American sports writing, like we said. Some of them, you know, they end up striking a chord in the sense that, like maybe the one about O'Leary comes to mind where something in that story becomes a, a bigger story, and it's in the it's in the national consciousness for a while. Then other ones maybe just kind of print and and people read them, and then they kind of you kind of just move on to the next one. And I guess I, I kind of wanted to avoid just generically asking you if you had a favorite story, but when you look back about the uh, look back at the impact that the various stories have had, is is there one maybe that you're most proud of? Um, you know, that's really hard to say that. I mean, obviously, different ones have struck different chords. There was one about Muhammad Ali's entourage that just seemed to strike something pretty deep in people and got a huge outpouring of, of response on that story. And then there was one about um, an Amish, an, uh, an African-American basketball coach in an Amish Mennonite town who led their basketball team um, to a state title and then got had brain cancer and died and just left this whole town in, in just tremendous grief. Um, and that one, I guess that one got more letters than any story at all. Was, and so there's that category and then there's, you know, stories about people that have somehow stayed in my life more afterwards and they kind of have a special place in my heart. You know, a guy like radio is, you know, He'd come to the house, you know, long after that story was written and visited, and um, he, he and the, the coach would bring him uh, from little town in Anderson, South Carolina, where he he lives, and he'd stay overnight, and just a great, sweet character. Or a guy named John Malangoni, uh, was a catcher with the Yankees, and wrote a story called uh, Damn the Yankee, um, and he would come and visit for years after that appeared, so... It's that kind of stuff when there's an ongoing relationship that comes out of it that sometimes can be, you know, those stories really stick with you. Let's talk a little bit about the latest one. Um, you had a, an article in this current double issue of SI, the Where Are They Now issue, uh, that focused on, uh, well, I guess kind of the the banner for it was why why don't why don't professional athletes speak out more. The second I seen your article, the first thing that came into mind was the Michael Jordan line of Republicans wear sneakers too. It just, as soon as I seen it, I, I just thought of that. And I've always struggled with wondering why athletes sometimes don't do more. Um, you know, sometimes the biggest, most polarizing athletes can be the most vanilla in terms of social causes, almost because they have to protect I guess their interest financially and and things like that, but then when I read the article, it was interesting because it focused more on a lesser known player, someone who 
was doing something as as a walk on at the University of Virginia. What was it about this story that made you take it in the direction of a lesser known guy instead of maybe trying to uh, get into the the bigger athlete? Um, one thing is that the importance of grounding a story in something or someone real in real circumstances is paramount for for me in writing a story. Like rather than kind of writing a generic. It'd be more like an essay if you were just kind of surveying the field of athletes who have or have not taken any kind of social activist stand, and it would just be kind of unconnected to anything real. I mean, for me, I had had to be anchored in something real, and here was a kid who stepped up just this past school year at University of Virginia, a football player who'd gone on an eight-day hunger strike, and it was really striking just for kind of emerging out of a out of a clean sky in a lot of ways, just with, you know, just how little context there is for that in these last 30, 40 years in the United States for athletes taking those kind of really strong stands that really take a risk for themselves, you know, either physically or reputation-wise or or even financially to really put yourself at risk uh, for something socially, a cause, or justice. So the fact that this kid had done it uh, just, to me, gave you a, a doorway into a story that you could then open it up and look at the larger thing. But, it, but it, having the story where it was tied to a, someone and you could follow them day to day through this hunger strike and then kind of jump off that to explore the, the, this bigger question of why why we're at where we're at with this just uh, just would, made, would make the story work a lot better than just, you know, kind of sitting back and and doing the generic story. So why do you think we're at where we're at with this, as you say? Well, you know, the story goes into a lot of, a good piece of the story goes into looking at, at us and who, who we are and what these athletes are growing up, how they're growing up, how they're being kind of bred in a way and how that works against more and more of the athlete developing that kind of connection with the world around him. And so I, I think that's a big piece of what's at the heart of it. And then athletes today, this isn't to say that athletes today don't, don't do a lot. There's, there's, you know, there's even in Jordan, I mean, that people hang that on them and then there's, that's notable. Uh, what, what, the quote that you, you raised, but you know, Jordan and a number of other athletes, huge amounts of money to help people in need. So it's not that that athletes aren't trying to help or aren't doing big things, big money to help. It's you know, it's more that taking the riskier stand that could offend somebody or step on some toes. Corporations, sponsors, you know, their agent has his intent up to make sure that. Nobody's, you know, no nobody's feathers are ruffled too much, and that's uh, that's that's that in the way they're bred, as I was referring to before. That those two things are two big pieces, two of the big pieces. There's other stuff as well, but that that's that's I think at, at the heart of of why you don't see athletes on the front lines the way you did back in the '60s and '70s. You know, Chris Ballard told us a story on this podcast a couple of months ago about how LeBron James and the Miami Heat were at an airport 
and there was a um, a group of troops there that wanted to get some pictures taken with the team, and uh, the PR for the team had said no, and LeBron stepped in and said, those are the troops, if they want to take pictures with us, we're going to be there to take pictures with us. And then, just around that same time, they had the uh, group uh, picture on, in Twitter with the with the hoods for the for the kid that was that was killed, and I thought LeBron took a really good step with those two anecdotes that I had heard, and kind of changing my perception of him a little bit. Maybe it's not LeBron, maybe it's a different athlete. But do you see someone uh, that is out there that can that can make steps into changing this? That can be the lead in athletes kind of taking a stand and be a little bit more vocal about it? Well, I mean, a guy like Steve Nash has picked his spots, but he's he's at times been, you know, stepped up and men, and I mean, he, in the, you know, when the war against Iraq was about to, uh, was just, just launching, he, you know, he, he wasn't afraid to wear a, a t-shirt, anti-war t-shirt, um, to the all-star practice and uh, took some flack for that. So a guy like that has some like capacity. I mean, Manute Bowl just did incredible stuff because basically put Yeah, that was in the piece. That was six, good. Yeah, $6 million into hospitals and schools in South Sudan where he was from. And then when he was getting eaten up by this skin disease that he contracted, uh, president of the new South Sudan nation asked him to oversee the first elections. And he, he stayed there extra week and a half or whatever to do that but this was you know when he really needed medical help and by the time he got back to the states it was too late and uh, they rushed him from the plane right to the hospital and uh, he died there so uh but again Manute wasn't getting raised in america and steve nash wasn't raised in america and you know we have a way of kind of separating our athletes out and putting them up on pedestals and and it's more of a separation than a connection kind of dynamic that's at play here with, with athletes. And so that's there's going to be, you know, consequences from that. You know, this might be a little bit of a random question. I'm not sure, but based on doing this story, maybe you have some insight. There's a presidential election this year. Uh, what role, if any, do you think sports will play in the election of the next president? Uh, you know, definitely be big. I don't think it'll be that large. There'll be athletes here and there who come out, you know, uh, for for Obama or or even or for Romney. And but I don't think that is going to have much of a, a big effect. You know, it's it takes an I think an active imagination in a way uh, to really create some big groundswell, and it, and it probably wouldn't necessarily center around a, a, a presidential election. It would take some larger issue that's kind of lurking in a society or a culture, and someone with that kind of platform, media platform, and prestige, um, to do something that, you know, captures the imagination. And then that, that can be a very galvanizing thing tap into something and really there's a power there. I mean, if a walk-on player at University of Virginia can get the national media coverage that uh, Joseph Williams engendered, imagine if it was somebody really big or what he could do and if he did something that was different and creative 
to show how much something really meant to him. That that's the kind of thing that would I think have create a real groundswell. The sportscasters are here with Gary Smith, one of the greatest sports writers of all time. Certainly, twelve best American sports writing appearances is unbelievable. Uh, a couple of maybe like a month ago. Another guy who's had his work quite often in the Best American Sports Rating Series is your colleague S.L. Price. He had a pretty incredible discussion about what has kept him away from Twitter. I wonder why you're not there. <laughs> uh, none of that stuff just doesn't interest me. You know, uh, that kind of, uh, I, I don't know, to me it's like every man for himself and but what somebody's quick hit opinion about something is, or it just really, it's kind of a foreign language to me, or it doesn't, it doesn't light my fire. If it does for somebody else, great. But, uh, well, it doesn't surprise me that a guy who writes, you know, 8,000 word pieces as a habit would struggle with the format of 140 characters per (laughs) thought, I guess. But well, it's not even a matter of that it would create a struggle. It just it has no interest for me. You don't see it. You don't see value in terms of like, hey, this piece that's in the magazine this week just hit the site. Check it out. You don't. You don't. Um, that doesn't. No, I would no. never. <laughs> I never think about saying that. To be honest, um, so you know, it's just yeah, and it's whatever makes. You know, if something works for somebody else, great, go for it. It's just for me, I just it doesn't even remotely kindle any any interest. But maybe in terms of this last piece that you wrote, could you see social media having a role in the athlete maybe increasing his social visibility in terms of? Oh, there's, there's no doubt that social media can be used, as we've seen in you know the Middle East and revolutions that are lighting up across the globe, you know, there's no doubt it can play a part. And if I was trying to overthrow a government, then maybe I would get a Twitter account. I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting question. <laughs> I think I'd probably have to. I mean, you know, that was my that was my goal. All right, maybe kind of a last thing here. Um, I mentioned, I think I met, yeah, I mentioned Chris Ballard, and he had a piece that he wrote for the magazine that turned into a longer book. Just talked about S.L. Price. Uh, he had a piece in the magazine about Al Quipa PA that he's working on for a book. It seems like your pieces would be the kind that could evolve into a longer story. And you've had two books published, but they're more compilations of other works. Did you ever think about taking one of your stories to the next level and maybe turning it into a you know, 500-page book? Um, you know, I've thought about it. I've had a number of opportunities to do so, and um, and who knows, won't won't preclude the possibility that that I would someday down the road. Uh, what I kind of run into on that is after I've spent a couple several months, you know, trying to get to the heart of something, and then compressing it and figuring how to get it into eight thousand words. It's such a such a internal process goes on that at the end of it I, I guess there's some concern that uh, that now turning that same piece into a book that I'll just now be airing it out in a way and there's a value to that and I 
I may end up doing it at some point. Uh, but um, it's, it's so far, just the thought of like now spending a year to do something that I've kind of already figured out in a way, that has always given me a pause about turning a magazine story into a, into a book. Um, maybe for me, just the way I work and operate it, it would be better if I approached something from the beginning as a book. But who knows? Uh, you know, everything's possible and uh, want to stay open to any, any possibilities. Maybe as a quick follow-up on that, does I've been wanting to ask someone this. Does what happened to Joe Poznanski this last year, you know, have you shy away a little bit more in the sense that he went to embed himself in state college for a year to write what was going to, I'm sure, be um, an incredible biography about Joe Paterno and then just have the rug pulled out for him and the story change so much to the point that his book is an embargo and it maybe will be one of the most anticipated sports books of all time because everyone just wants to see what ha- what happened to this book, how it changed. Does does that does the idea of, you know, okay, instead of spending a couple months on this, I have to spend a year or two on this and, and geez, how could the story change? Does that is that part of what kind of makes you want to take a step back? No, no, I wouldn't I mean that that was you know, obviously crazy what happened there and and rare i mean there's always the possibility as you're working on a story and developing it that crazy new twists and turns can come in and that that had nothing to the degree of drama that you're talking about there but i've had that happen and it takes some you know some real flexibility to shift gears and and incorporate that in to what you were planning to write, uh, that that's that's pretty hairy scenario. There's no doubt, and I've, ha- I've had it happen. But that wouldn't keep me away from attempting a book. You know, the fact that things could change, transform over the course of the year or two that I was working on it, um, everything changes. So you got to you have to be ready to assimilate, take in, and whatever you know, roll with it. But uh, no, that that wouldn't that wouldn't that wouldn't stop me at all. All right, uh, sportscasters here, finishing with uh, Gary Smith, one of the great sports writers of all time. Uh, again, you can find his work in 12 versions of the Best American Sports Writing Anthology, which we spent a lot of time here talking with Gunn Stout and some of the other editors and the sportscasters. That's the only reason I brought it up so many times. Uh, also, there's a piece in the uh, Sports Illustrated that has Earl Campbell on the cover about activism, some of the things that we talked about in this podcast. Anything else we can look forward to in the future? Anything you can tip us uh, on? You know, I'm not sure what the, what the next one's going to be. Uh, just kind of not, not, not certain yet. So nothing I can throw out there. But, uh, but anyway, um, appreciate you, uh, you doing the interview. Yeah, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you very much. Uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Good deal. See ya. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson. Drew Brees. Steven Jackson. Miles Austin. We have Let Ocho Cinco. TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank Gary Smith from Sports Illustrated for joining us today. 
12 times in the Best American Sports Writing Series. I can't even, can't even really fathom that. But uh, thanks to Gary for being on. Okay, so today is the return of Five on Fantasy in a sense. We've kind of, well, when fantasy football season ended last year, we stopped for a while. And uh, in this spot, we've been doing what we did a lot, mostly top 10 lists. Right. I'd say it was the majority of what was in this spot while Five on Fantasy wasn't. Then, around the time of the NFL draft, I think we did our version 1.0. It was in April we did a mo- of our mocks. One. Right. And then, just recently, we did our second version of the first two rounds and kind of our mock draft for fantasy football. Well, today, we're going to kind of get back to the format, and the format of fantasy, Five on Fantasy is very loose, Don. Yes. Yeah, sometimes it can be uh, five things. Like during the season, we'll sometimes we'll each come up with a point or two, and then we'll have starts and sits, and we'll have five total things, and then maybe one, the the fifth point will be like a, something we argue back and forth a little bit. Uh, it could just mean five or so minutes on fantasy, but it, like you said, it's very loose. It's not as rigid as pick four tends to be or any of those segments. But uh, this week, it's kind of tough because we did our mocks. Now nothing's really going to change until training camp. Like there's right, there's no reason to maybe update Matt Forte those mocks, signs right. or something like that. We won't update those again until beginning of August sometime, probably. Right, and yeah. So in general terms, we just talked about what to do now. Uh, we texted back and forth, and we just said, "Let's talk about how to prepare for a league." And I took that one way, and you took it another way, but it'll it'll work out, and. Uh, We'll go back and forth with different things. I took it more from the perspective of if you're going to build a league, either... Which is something you're doing, right? I am you're in the do process of yep. starting a brand new league that has never been done. Right. So I assume what you have lined out in some extent is, okay, if you're starting a league from scratch, what do you do? Right. And uh, my first thing, and this is for anybody, uh, have a pre-draft meeting. I- invite all of your participants in the league... Uh, you can hash out any rules, like the type of league. Is it going to be uh, head-to-head, total points, anything like that, roto, uh, the draft format. Is it going to be auction? Is it going to be regular snake draft? And also any rules like about roster size or starting rosters, anything like that. Any and every rule should be hashed out at the meeting. And if every player in the league has the chance to go to this meeting, it should eliminate potential problems throughout the season. Uh, it gives everyone a chance to input on how the league is run, and like I said, hopefully it'll be more fun for everybody. And and the internet's making this easier. I mean, if a guy can't is right, out of right. town, I mean Skype options are available, you know, things like that. So it's not as hard maybe as it once was, especially if you have people from out of town in the league. And then to add to that, uh, have a very specific rule book. Uh, once you do this meeting. Make sure you send out an email. Maybe it gives everyone one last chance to look at it and say, well, that's not exactly what I thought we meant by this or whatever. But by this time your season starts, you should have a rule book that details just about everything. Look, maybe some people aren't in leagues that are this strict or anything like that. But once in a while, a weird situation is going to pop up. And if you don't have rules for it, that's when your fun league turns into bitching and politics and fighting. stuff like that. So you try to avoid that with all this stuff that seems maybe a little bit tedious at the beginning. All right, well, kind of my first thing, the first thing I thought of when we said, well, it's July 10th, what should you be doing to prepare for fantasy football season? I think the number one thing is you have to decide where you want to play your game. What I mean by that is back 
when I first started playing, uh, there was no internet component to the league. I actually handed the stats from the USA Today each week. Okay. That was my very first league. I think by the second, we had a, a desktop program called Stats World that did it right. for us mostly. But now you're going to a website to play, and there's so many options. And the first thing you have to decide is, do you want to pay for that or do you want it to be free? Right. And there's good options for both. And I'm going to recommend, I guess, one of each. Uh, the, I really believe that the free option that has emerged as the best right now is NFL.com. I agree. I think that they have passed ESPN in the last couple of years. Uh, as the leader in free fantasy football websites, I think that they have just about everything you could want for free on their website and more. Right. They have a free app. They have free app, and it's there's a tablet version this year. Okay. And also there's Android and Apple versions of the league. So right. if you got guys in your league who are on iPhones and you got guys – like just in this podcast right here, I'm kind of an Apple guy. You're kind of an Android guy. Right. So – NFL.com wouldn't stop us from right. using our phones to be a part of the league. And for some people, especially people who have sites like this blocked at work, the phone app is crucial right, right. because yeah. they can still maybe get a message comment out there or make a waiver claim. Yeah, especially if you have first come first, at, at especially work. if you have first come first serve waivers. Uh, the only knock I have on the NFL.com app from last year that I didn't love is it's a it's basically a, it's a website. I mean, it's called an app, but it's basically like a mobile version of their website. And it's well done, except I had problems picking up free agents. And didn't I, not, Fabiano not, did tell us they improved that, not right? Not picking up free agents, but sorting free agents to pick up. Like It would give you every free agent that was available. So you'd have a lot of guys out there that just had zero points because they were the fourth string kicker on some team or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so I'm interested to see how it works this year. I signed up for it. Today, it's already available for download, but since I don't have any leagues going, it's kind of hard to see what it's going to do. Now, uh, if you're looking for a pay site, the one I would recommend is uh, MyFantasyLeague.com. Simply as that, www.MyFantasyLeague.com. Now, the main difference between the pay sites and the non-pay sites is the complexity. Right. You know, uh, these NFL.com and ESPN.com and Yahoo, the free ones, they say completely customizable. But it's not. Right, right. It's not. They say it is, but it's not. Here's an example. If you use bonuses for yardage, let's say. 100-yard running back gets a three-point bonus. Right. Like that. Usually, they'll allow for that, but there'll be like three options. Zero to 100. Zero to 100 right. after 125, after 150. With a pay site, you can literally tailor your scoring system to the yard. You could put 113 in is a bonus. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you did, you could. With the the pay sites, you're paying for the ability to literally customize your league in any way you want. And with our brothers, we have a league we call the Brothers League, and it's an all-play league. And I don't think I've seen a free site that would allow you to do all-play the way we do. No, not not that I know. I mean, it's the only league I've done that in. But and let me say this about the free ones: the free ones are actually typically prettier. Uh, NFL. dot com, ESPN. dot com are much nicer looking than my fantasy. They have league. more money behind them, right? But my fantasy league lets you do a lot of cool. And this isn't 
an advertisement for them. They don't know. What no, we doing. don't know them. We don't. <laughs> but I just think it's the best. You it's have all sorts of polls on the website. Yep. Uh, that forces participation. I mean, encourages forces. But you can actually make it so you can't submit your lineup until you vote in the poll. Right, which we've done. Which we've done right to kind of encourage and force some participation because nothing's worse than a fantasy league where you do your draft and then nobody talks for the rest of the year because why bother even being in that league you might as well just sign up for a free league or some money league on the internet then and another thing i love about myfantasyleague.com is again the apps they have uh a universal app in the uh, apple store that's good on the iphone and the ipad and it's also already been released and they released it early they said so that people can you Try can, to log in. Yeah, and you can pull up last year's league and mess around with it, and then they are encouraging people to let them know if there's something that doesn't look right, and they vowed to fix it in time for the season. Right, and they did have some problems with that last year. I know people logging in correctly or into the previous year, like because it's cool to see your history and everything. But the one thing I'll say also about them is because it's a smaller place maybe, I've emailed them problems with the app before, and – the, the main man that does the apps there gets right back to you. So that's another thing. If you have like an independent or slightly smaller pay league, maybe you get more hands-on support for things like that. I'll say that, I mean, stats world, I mean, if it never went away, we'd still be, I, I know we'd still be using it. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was complicated though. But so. I imagine now with like the real-time scoring, it would probably all be taken out of your hands. My, my last thing and this is more just a rule to make your league more fun. Uh, the draft days should be your most important day of your season. It should be the most fun day of the season. In my league, unless there's some sort of crazy exceptions, I'm sure people know people like fighting overseas or something like that, no absentee drafting. Yeah. If you can't attend the draft, don't be in the league. Um, if you have to, you can Skype in and still kind of be a part of it. Uh, but... I don't want to have a league where, as the commissioner, I have to draft for someone off a piece of paper that they made. Hell no. So be at your league. It's the one time a year maybe that you get to meet everybody that's in the league so you can see who you're playing with. It's a fun night typically. By the end of the night, everyone is usually happy with their team. Most people don't go away pissed off or anything. So you got 10 people uh, all thinking or 12 people all thinking they can win the league. Maybe there's a lot of trash talk that's a lot of fun, like picking on people's picks and it's just it's a good time ordering food and yeah, hanging out. Get yeah, it's a, it's a big party that happens to have a draft in the middle of it. So don't allow absentee drafting unless absolutely necessary. Uh, and like I said, even in that case, they should probably the people should be skyping in and stuff so you can pick on them for skyping in. We had a kid that was too hungover to, to draft the one year. I remember that. So he skyped and we just picked on him every single pick, and it was it, it was a good time. And that like I said, that should be the only exception. They should be there somehow. All right, so my last thing for today, and I guess it's going to be four on fantasy today, which is fine because, like we said, it's a loose format. It's more of a name than anything. Uh, we kind of said, you know, what could you be doing right now, July 10th? Well, here's what you could be doing. I know for a fact that ESPN.com and NFL.com have mock draft lobbies, lobbies open, yeah. and it's super cool, and I would say you should do one a week. And the cool thing about them is you can sign up for any pick you want. So, and and maybe this is kind of part of my point. If possible, get your draft order set now. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah if I it's possible that, to but... get your draft order set, do it because then people can start preparing yeah. preparing from the pick that they're going to be. 
And uh, I noticed someone on my Facebook was really pumped yesterday because they had set their fantasy pick, and he was bummed he got the ninth pick, but at least he knew where he was. And now he can go into these mock uh, lobbies and start picking from there and see how the drafts will shake out. And right, and do different things. Like if you get the ninth, if you're going to do a bunch of lobbies and pick the ninth pick, just because you have set in your head, uh, I'm going to draft running back, running back, receiver, receiver, quarterback, or whatever. Do something different. Try to draft see what two your receivers. Team, yeah, see what your see team looks like that way. Right, see how ugly it is. And then you'll know maybe if you have to reach a little bit on a guy that you like, how it's going to handicap you for the rest of the round and how you're going to have to play catch-up or how it works out. Maybe You never know. Maybe you draft a wide receiver at that nine spot and you end up loving your team. So, And, you know, me and my brother last year, we went into some mock rooms together. Right. And it was cool. I mean, it was fun. It was just like... I'd call him up, like, hey, you want to do a mock draft? He's like, yeah, I'm just sitting around watching TV. We'd put our laptops on our lap, watch TV, and, you know, chat in the room or on whatever. And Right, and I've, I've only done them on ESPN, so I can't speak for NFL.com. I, I'm the same. But I know that ESPN, they are regional. Like, they can say, like, where uh, Buffalo yes. mock draft. So even to some extent there, that information might be more important because maybe someone from Buffalo values C.J. Spiller a little bit higher than someone from – Texas would or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, it's a cool thing to do. Also, I know both ESPN and NFL.com already have out their draft day manifestos. I know Matthew Barry does one for ESPN. It's good. He throws a lot of stuff out there, I think, sometimes to be like dare to be different stuff. Just be- Like Vic last year at number one. Right. right. But uh, he also has a lot of interesting information in it that might make you think a little bit, a little bit differently. But, yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited. A month away. Yeah, and today is just the start of uh, the preseason editions of Five on Fantasy, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, you know, you got some cool information. And eventually, we're gonna get to the point where there's gonna be games going on, training camps going on, so we'll be able to talk about more, more things. Strategy, but yeah. for the next couple of weeks, we're just gonna be talking kind of about uh, ways to play. And I think what we're gonna do next week is we're gonna have we're gonna pick out a few topics and take the opposite side of them and debate them. Like, should my league be PPR? And Don will say yes, sure. and I'll say no, and that's what we'll do. We'll do some debates that way. So that's what we'll look forward to doing in this segment next week. All right, at this point, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with our last interview of today's podcast, and that's with uh, Ben Ryder from SI and SI.com. <laughs> Our next guest today is from South Orange, New Jersey, is not a graduate of Yale University. Today he's a staff writer at Sports Illustrated where he covers baseball, football, and spent the summer of 2010 covering the World Cup soccer tournament. He often writes the Inside Baseball column at the beginning of the magazine, and you can find his writing on SI.com, where he most recently wrote about Jose Reyes and the Miami Marlins. He's making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? Hey, Steve, i got to say, you always do your research uh, very impressively on me. Oh, thank you. What did I have for dinner last night? (laughs) Chinese? (laughs) Uh, I think you had the uh, General Sows with some lo mein. (laughs) Not quite, (laughs) but uh, I guess guess your research powers do have their limits. (laughs) So I want to ask you a real quick Yale question. So get this. My brother, I think I told you this Mm -hmm. last time. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. My brother's a D1 hockey player at Yale. He's in between his freshman and sophomore year. And I was a little disappointed when he told me he wasn't really going to be home this summer. He was going to be spending most of his time in New Haven. 
And I said, well, you know, I can understand that. You know, you're going to be work. You know, he's working out with the trainer, and that's good for him. But the main reason he's there is because he has a job on the golf course that pays twelve dollars and fifty cents an hour, which I think is really good money for a college student. Yeah. And he works Monday to Friday, seven thirty to three thirty. Then he can golf whenever he wants, either in the evenings or on the weekend. And I saw a picture of him on Twitter working the other day. One of his buddies he was working with kind of posted it, and he was sleeping on a golf cart. <laughs> so, well, I mean, <laughs> what's, the, what's the question? It well, sounds like a pretty I, good gig. I just wonder if you ever had a – what you did in the summers while you were at Yale. I mean, is this like a uh, spoiled athlete thing? I mean, or, you know, what the hell's going on there? Like, Seems like you know athletes have a have a way of getting good jobs there. We should add that the Yale golf course is one of considered one of the best you know in the Northeast. Really, I think it's definitely one of the top few college courses out there. Um, and you know, another guy who had that job in the past was a guy who was a year ahead of me in school, was Eric Johnson. He's most famous now for being you know Jessica Simpson's uh, I guess fiance and the father of her baby. Oh. But he's also people forget an NFL tight end with the 49ers and the Saints. Anyway, this is a guy who uh, is so athletically gifted, he'd never really played golf before, got this job for the summer, and by the end was a scratch golfer. Oh, my goodness. So I, guess, I guess, I mean, you know, that, that's not a normal thing. Like, you have to be a pretty good athlete to be able to do that, but maybe your brother will be able to shave some strokes off of, off of his game um, with access to a course like that. That's 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 great. I, I didn't expect that. I guess when I asked that question. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's shift gears. Let's talk a little bit of baseball. Uh, we're basically at the midpoint. Teams last week played their eighty-second game. All-star home run derby last night. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Guess mm-hmm. a great place to kick off is let's kind of talk a little bit about first season awards. Let's start mm-hmm. with MVP. Who's been the MVP of the American League National League so far? Yep. For me, the American League is, is a bit, well, both are actually quite competitive at this point. You know, a month ago, I think everybody would have said Josh Hamilton, the American League. But at this point, I think that I've been converted. I think you have to say the American League MVP is Mike Trout of the Angels. You know, yes, he, well, he only came in April 27th, all right, and the team was 6-14 and 14 at that time. They're now 48-38, and 38, and this guy, everybody knew he was going to be good. But nobody had any idea he was going to be, you know, the best, pretty much the best player in the game at the age of 20. He doesn't turn 21, I think, until next month. He's hitting 341, 12 home runs, 26 of 29 stolen bases. He's the best outfielder in the league. You know, I think that the Angels' turnaround has a lot to do with Mike Trout. And I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, he's going to become the first rookie since Ichiro to win the AL MVP if he keeps this up. Do you got Votto in the NL? Um, again, it's competitive there. I got to give it to Andrew McCutcheon. You know, nothing against Joey Votto. Uh, you know, we have debates about whether the MVP should be given to, you know, this, who's the most outstanding player, who's the most valuable player. I mean, to me, McCutcheon's both. You know, his numbers speak for themselves. 362, 18 homers, 60 ribbies, 14 steals. Kind of like the Mike Trout of the National League in a lot of ways. When we look at value, you know, the Pirates are in first place somehow, shockingly. They're 48 and 37. And if you look at that lineup, it's, it basically stinks <laughs> besides right. Andrew McCutcheon. You know, no other regular has an OPS better than 800. McCutcheon's OPS is 1.039. 
So he's obviously getting it done from the outstanding perspective and from the value perspective. I think he's second to none as well. But I think we have to look at him at this point in the season. Well, a lot of people have called this season um, the year of the pitcher again. Uh, we've seen a bunch. Uh-huh. We've seen a bunch of no hitters. We've seen perfect games. We've seen one hitters. Uh, National League, American League, Cy Young. Where are you going to go in that direction? You know, despite Tony Larusa's decision, which you know I'm not <laughs> going to get too crazy about because I don't think it's that big a deal. However, I don't see how you don't give you know the starting nod in the All Star game to R. A. Dickey. You know, I understand maybe Buster Posey can't catch a knuckleball. You know, whatever. It's an exhibition game. I think R. A. Dickey. You know, statistically, he deserves it. And also, you know, he's a story that kind of deserves to end or deserves to continue there uh, with the All-Star Game start. The thing about him, I was talking to Chipper Jones a couple days ago, or a few days ago, I guess, when they came in uh, to play the Yankees. And he was saying, unlike a guy like Tim Wakefield, you know, Dickie's knuckleball is hard, right? It's like Wakefield would kind of flutter in, kind of like a butterfly, you know. Dickies is up there 80 miles an hour, and then at the last second, it'll just kind of swerve away from the bat. A very unique guy, and I think he should have been rewarded. Um, if he keeps this up, I think he will be rewarded with this. Cy Young. Um, AL, I'm looking at, you know, a lot of good candidates there again. You know, Chris Sale, David Price, Jared Weaver. Uh, I'm looking at Justin Verlander again. You know, he's, he's right up there. In the, you know, he's fourth in the area or something like that. Um, he's right up there, but I think that his real value is just the incredible amount he pitches for that team, you know, leads the league in innings and strikeouts, and he's has 59 straight starts of more than six innings. It's just incredible in this day and age. It's the longest streak since Steve Carlton had 69 over three decades ago. I mean, that's real value to me, you know, Verlander. Uh, you know, if we're going to talk about all four of these awards, which one's the, a no-doubter, to me it would be that one. So if Trout is your MVP of the American League, I assume he's your Rookie of the Year. If, yeah. Yeah, so National League, the hype is around uh, Harper, but I'm assuming you're going to name someone else. Yeah, I, I got I got to go Harper as okay. well here. You know, right. I guess there are some other candidates, like Wade Miley, who's had a very good year. Um, so the Diamondbacks is a pitcher. He's in the All-Star game too. But, yeah, I got to go Harper. I think that, you know, one-on-one, head-to-head, Trout's basically, you know, taking a real early round lead here on Harper, obviously. But Harper has come in and really helped stabilize the first place Nationals at a very young age. You know, his numbers are pretty good. I think they're going to improve. But, uh, yeah, he's my winner at this point. All right. Let's follow up on some specific things that came up based on that little jumping off point discussion there. We could do do managers, but nobody cares about that. (laughs) Right. Uh. Okay, so you mentioned McCutcheon. Hurdle, <laughs> okay, exactly. You mentioned McCutcheon, and I have a dream. Uh, I think my girlfriend is almost a little bit jealous of how much I love PNC Park, and I have a dream to someday take the three and a half hour drive from Buffalo to Pittsburgh for a playoff game in that in that place. What do you? Th- the Pirates were in a similar situation last year, where they were near the top of the division, maybe a little bit earlier than they are at this point of the season before they fell off. You think the Pirates can can sustain this and with the extra playoff spot potentially squeak in? You know, I don't, unfortunately. I agree with you that I think it's a great story. Um, I I would love to see this team that's been through so much heartache over the past you know, two decades, really, um, do something here. 
But I, I think it's going to be tough as they're currently constituted, really. Obviously, McCutcheon's incredible. But as we said, if you look at the rest of the lineup, you know, Pedro Alvarez has shown some signs of life. Garrett Jones has, like, picked it up a little bit. They're really going to need to add a bat um, somehow. And I'm just not sure how they're going to do it. You know, it's a weird season. I think people are still trying to figure out this new uh, playoff structure and how that's going to impact the trade deadline. You know, a real way it's going to impact it is there's just not going to be that much help available out there. You know, could they look and maybe add, I don't know, an Alfonso Soriano or something like that? Possibly. You know, supposedly Edwin Encarnacion might be available from the Blue Jays. But unless they have, I think, real improvement from the guys they have in that lineup, I think that their current pace is going to sustain. In a division, that's not so bad. I think both the Reds and Cardinals probably have more top-to-bottom talent than the Pirates. Well, you know, the Pirates aren't the only team that are near or at the top of a division that are a surprise. Uh, Baltimore being second in the American League is obviously a surprise. Um, I think everyone expects and maybe still expects Detroit to win the American League Central, but currently Cleveland and Chicago are ahead of them. No real surprises in the AL West. Uh, maybe the Nationals a little bit ahead of schedule, but probably maybe some people expected that. I think Jeff Passan told me he picked them to win the World Series, so we'll leave them out of it. Uh, Mets mm-hmm. still have 40, 46 wins, 46 and 40. That's more than I thought. We mentioned the Pirates. Yep. Which of these teams, and the Dodgers are probably a bit of a surprise at 47 and 40, although it seems like they're trying to hold on after a really great start. Uh, yeah. Of all these teams that are a surprise, is there one or two that you think can sustain this for the whole season? Uh, absolutely. I think the Nationals are without a doubt for real. You know, we talk about the Dodgers. We'll, talk, we'll maybe get to the Dodgers in a second. But, you know, the Nationals have had this six-year plan um, to kind of get into contention. And that involved a lot of losing. You know, it meant not only losing so that they'd have the top spot in the draft to get Strasburg and Harper, but losing so they'd consistently have these top spots and then do well with them. But, you know, you look at guys like Jordan Zimmerman, who was a draft pick. They actually drafted him as compensation uh, they got for losing Alfonso Soriano for a free agent all those years ago. He's been arguably the best guy on their staff. You know, the four guys they traded to Oakland that brought them back, Gio Gonzalez, who's just been incredible. Those are all draft picks that they kind of put in all this, these years and years of losing to acquire and to scout properly. So I think that this is a really, you know, the start of the coming to fruition of a long-term plan for the Nationals. They've had their own injury troubles. You know, Mike Morse is hurt. He hasn't really done anything this year. You know, Ryan Zimmerman is heated up a little bit recently, but he's played very below his abilities. Um, I think the Nationals are for real, and I think the Dodgers are for real. You know, they're still in first place somehow, despite suffering just this unbelievable amount of injuries. Not only to Matt Kemp, but to Andre East here. Uh, you know, D. Gordon, uh, the shortstop, now uh, has an injured hand. He's out for six weeks. You know, they're throwing lineups out there with guys like, you know, Bobby Abreu and you know, Tony Gwynn Jr. and guys who might be solid players at this point or aren't stars, they, they still somehow managed to hang in the first place. So I think once that team gets their guys back, I think that they'll uh, at least uh, probably come away with one of the wild cards. Well, let's talk about Ken for a second because he's a guy who was on the DL, came back for a minute, went back on the DL, 
Hasn't played a game for the Dodgers since he started his second DL stint, and last night he participated in the home run derby. Now, your colleague at SI, Jimmy Traina, kind of drove this discussion on Twitter last night, kind of saying that, you know, if this was in New York, people would be flipping out. Uh, I think Rich Eisen was saying, you know, well, it doesn't really register in, in, in L.A. He's such a big star here. Everyone just kind of gives him the benefit of the doubt. What do you think about his decision to participate in the home run derby before participating in a game? Uh, for his team since going on the DL for the second time this season. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I really am. I can't get um, you know too worked up about it anyway. First of all, he he has you know played. He's has had a bit of a rehab assignment here in the minor leagues. So he's been playing in games. They haven't been in the Dodgers, but he's been playing. Two, obviously, the team was fine with it. You know, he's not going to do it if they strongly encourage him not to. And three, you know, as we saw from his performance, he didn't particularly do very well. It wasn't much more strenuous than an extended batting practice no. session. I guess he, what do you, he had one, right? I think he had one, I think he saw, so that means he basically took about 11 swings. <laughs> so I don't think that 11 swings, you know, not even really impacting the area he injured, which is his hamstring, uh, will do very much. I'm I'm fine with that decision. I thought it was exciting for the fans, probably exciting for him despite the outcome. Um, and I think that after this long absence, you know, Kemp still leaves the Dodgers in home runs. He's 12. He hasn't played for like two months. That tells you how much they might miss this guy uh, and how much his impact is going to be when he comes back. We've kept this mostly positive, but i got to ask you about the Phillies, 37-50. and 50. I know they came into this season with injury troubles, and it hasn't let up. So they do have, a, I guess, that excuse. But what's going on with the Phillies, and do you expect them to be a seller at the trade deadline? I do expect them to be a seller. We said that, aren't, you know, with the second wild card, there aren't many teams who are definitely out of it at this point, right? I mean, I guess we're talking about Seattle looks like they're out of it. Twins look like they're out of it. Cubs. You know, the Cubs and Astros, probably the Rockies. I think you got to throw the Phillies in there as one of those teams. You know, shockingly, yes, they had their injury troubles. Obviously, Roy Halladay um, being a major one. But I think this is really a team whose window has passed. You know, yes, Ryan Howard and Chase Utley are now back. You know, I don't think Utley will ever be the Utley uh, that he used to be. You know, when for five straight years, he was essentially the best second baseman in the game. Uh, he has his chronic knee condition now. You know, I guess he's played 10 games, hitting 235 with a couple home runs. I think he can be a contributing player, but he's never going to be the star he was. I don't know, Ryan Howard, he's getting up there. I think that we will see uh, this team, these sellers at the deadline. I think Cole Hamels is definitely going to be up. I think probably Shane Victorino, Shane Victorino who's also approaching free agency, will be dealt as well. And the amazing thing about the Phillies is where would they be if they weren't getting just an absolutely ridiculous year from Carlos Ruiz, the catcher? You know, this is a guy who is always known as a game manager, you know, solid enough hitter. He's getting 350 with 1,346 RBIs at the break. I mean, I, I can't imagine where this team would be. They're 37 and 50. They'd probably be about 30 and 57 with that chooch behind the plate there. Sportscasters are here with Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. Uh, the All-Star Games tonight, does it interest you at all? And uh, maybe if it doesn't, is there anything that baseball can do to improve the All-Star Game? Well, you know, I mean, I and everybody else thinks that 
tying some field advantage in the World Series. The All Star Game is completely ridiculous, and a time it should pass, um, or, or you know, it should be something that you know, it should just basically go to the best record, especially now in the era of interleague play. It seems silly to do it otherwise. Um, however, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I enjoy watching the All Star Game. It's not the type of thing you're going to live and die with, but it's nice having it on. You know, nowadays I guess people see all these players who don't have to play in their own cities because of you know MLB.tv and you know cable packages and things like that. But it is a chance for people, you know, maybe not watch the Pirates too much to see how amazing Andrew McCutcheon is, for example. Um, maybe I haven't watched the Angels to get to see how just kind of different out there Mike Trout looks. Uh, you know, the event I actually enjoy the most um, in All-Star, I guess it's not exactly a weekend, but in the, the All-Star period of time is the Futures game the other day. I don't know if uh, you got a chance to catch that, Steve, but yeah. there's just so much talent in the minor leagues right now. And it was really fun because those guys you can't really watch on TV unless you really, really mine the internet for, you know, grainy video of their games and stuff. See a guy like Will Myers who should be up in Kansas City in, you know, a matter of weeks in that game and all these other, you know, this guy Bruce Rondon, the Rondon, the Tigers reliever throwing 101 every pitch. Um, that game probably makes the entire thing for me as far as All-Star uh, weekend. All right. Uh, after the All-Star game, we're going to play the second half. Why don't you give us a couple predictions or a couple things, maybe not necessarily predictions, but a couple things you'll be watching to see how they develop in the second half of the baseball season. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, I think we might have talked about this, Steve, but like going into the American League, uh, going into the season this year in the American League, it seemed like everybody knew the five teams that were going to make the playoffs, right? Everybody thought it was the Yankees, the Rays, the Tigers, the Rangers and the Angels. Mm-hmm. And obviously those, that prediction seems to be upset a little bit at the beginning of the season when the Orioles raced out, the Angels had a rough start. But now it seems like it's rounding into form. So I guess I think the thing to watch is, especially as the Rays get some of their guys back like Evan Longoria, um, you know, if the AL will end up you know, kind of going to form after all, you know. I think in the NL, the races should be much more interesting for a variety of reasons. We've talked about you know, Pittsburgh being involved there. It's a really going to be a really good three-team race in the Central between three talented teams and the Pirates, the Reds, and the Cardinals. Um, I'd probably still stick with the Cardinals to win that one out, but uh, it's a real toss-up. NLE, same thing. You know, can the Mets somehow stay in this thing? Um, and the NLS, too. You know, I, I, I think it's going to be a dogfight between the Dodgers and the Giants. So to me... Uh, going forward, I think the NL races are going to be a bit more compelling. But, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see if these teams in the AL do uh, what they're really supposed to be doing. Last thing, it's just kind of a quick side thing that, I don't know, bothered me for whatever reason. The other day, uh, Zach Greinke got kicked out of the game in the first inning for, I guess, throwing the ball into the ground. Uh, maybe they right. thought he was showing him up. What do you think of that and uh, what it says about umpires and their relationship with players and, and things like that. Did, did you have an opinion on that at all? Well, I mean, it was clearly a, an early hook, you know. I mean, I thought the fun, one of the funny things about that was you know, we're talking about guys who might be traded at the deadline. Zach Granke is definitely one of them. So there were, Places you know, I don't know, scouts. half dozen or more scouts <laughs> yeah. in the stands there to watch his 
start, and he was kicked out immediately from the game. So apparently all these other uh, all these other scouts and teams are a bit upset about that. Yeah, you know, I think that there's some umpires out there who kind of, uh, it could be a little more flexible as far as the behavior they tolerate. You know, I think that there are some who, you know, try and make themselves the show. I think for, for the most part, the umps get a pretty bad rap. You know, it's, it's a hard job. It's the kind of job that people only notice when something goes wrong. Uh, it's kind of like a police kicker in the NFL in that way. Um, I think that they do a pretty good job, but, you know, that cranky thing was pretty ridiculous, to be honest. All right. Uh, sportscasters and Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. Thanks for everything, Ben. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Steve. All right. Talk to you soon, bud. All right, last segment of Season 2, Episode 26 of the Sportscasters. I want to thank all our guests today, Hall of Famer Jack McCollum, Gary Smith of SI, and Ben Ryder of SI. Actually, to some extent, all three guys were essentially SI writers today. Yeah. SI continues to be Sportscasters' best friend. That's right. Uh, last thing, since it's been away a couple weeks, I want to give all the addresses and stuff out again. If you're looking for us on Facebook, Find us there, www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Find us on Twitter, we're at sports underscore casters. Email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blogs, the sportscasters.blogspot.com and the sportscasters.tumblr.com. And you can find all this information at our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget about our other podcast, Football Nation, this week. Uh, we have Carrie J. Byrne from Cold Hard Football Facts, our boss, uh, on the show. <laughs> Uh, so definitely check that out at www.footballnation.com. Um, pick four uh, to recap from two weeks ago. Uh, I went 4-0, and which is the first time I've ever done that. It's only the second time either of us have done that. Don's done it once, and I've done it once now. The exception of the f- kind of like weird things where I went 7-0 and two weeks ago with the NHL thing. But first time I just won all four and uh, – Won the game of the week, the Mets and Ari Dickey over the Dodgers, 9 to nothing. I had uh, Jokovic over Harrison in round two of Wimbledon. Jokovic didn't win the tournament, but he got past round two, and Harrison, that was stealing candy from a baby. Uh, also, my winning pitcher of the week was a guy named Harrison, a uh, pitcher for the Rangers, and he beat Oakland 4-3. to three. My bold prediction was that Jared Sollinger would fall out of the lottery. He did. He went 21st to the Celtics. Improves my record to 64-45, and 45, which is pretty good. Uh, Don won his winning pitcher of the week, Roy Oswald, and the Rangers over the Tigers, 13-9. to Not exactly a pitcher's duel. No. Uh, he also had, as his host choice, the same game that I had as my pitcher. So he had Texas over the Ranger, uh, Texas Rangers over Oakland 4-3. to And he went the other way the game of the week, picked the Dodgers. That didn't work. And he thought that Sutter would end up in Detroit. He ended up in Minnesota. And it looked like Minnesota, he looked like he might get that right for a while. It would be Detroit, but it wasn't. No, game of the week this week, we're going to do something we don't normally do due to a total lack of games. Uh, we're going to pick a game that's actually tonight. It's 6.15, full disclosure, right now. Uh, the game doesn't start till 8 p.m. I We're going to go with the All-Star game. Yeah. The NL versus the AL. 
Look, I got no good reason for picking this. I probably should look more at who the pitchers are than anything, but the AL is 142 and 110 against the NL at the breaks, so give me the AL. Yeah, you know, for the last bunch of years, I've always wanted to put money on the NL because the AL is always a favorite in this game. And I just kind of think that either team could win, so why not bet on the team that you get the plus money on? Okay. And I think the NL has won the last couple maybe, but this year the AL team just looks way better. So I'm going to pick the AL just based on it seems like they have a better team. It's in an American League ballpark in Kansas City, so I'm going to go with uh, with the American League as well. All right, sticking with baseball, my winning pitcher this week is Jose Quintana of the White Sox. He's pitching Friday at 8-10 against the Royals and Bruce Chen, who uh, despite not a great ERA at 5.22, has had 15 decisions. He's 7-8 and eight compared to Quintana's 4-1, and one, but he's got a 2.04 ERA, so it's looking a little better there. But, yeah, give me the White Sox. All right, you did winning picture, right? pitcher, right? Yes. All right, I'm going to take uh, my, one of my favorite pitchers in the league, uh, Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers. He's 6-5 and five with a 2.91 ERA. And they play the Padres, who are one of the worst teams in baseball, on Friday the 13th at 10.10 p.m. Uh, the Padres are throwing another guy named Clayton, Clayton Richard, uh, who is 6-9 with a 3.91 ERA. So I'm going to take Kershaw and the Dodgers. All right, my host choice this week, sticking again with baseball, so hopefully going for what's going to be a gimme. Uh, I'm going to take the Giants over the Astros on Saturday. That's a 9.05 p.m. start. Tim Lincecum pitching, who's been not very good this year. He's 3-10 and 10 with a yeah, 6.42 ERA. Uh, but he's playing the Astros, so hopefully that'll cure what ails him. All right, I'm going to stick with baseball as well, and I'm going to take um, same day as uh, – my winning pitcher, so Friday the 13th. I'm going to take the Rangers over the Mariners. It's in Seattle, but Rangers one of the better teams in baseball. Rangers are throwing Derek Holland and Seattle Kevin Millwood. I'm going to take the Rangers over the Mariners on the road. My bold prediction this week, I'm going to put my homer hat on here and predict that the Sabres sign Shane Doan. Uh, I know he's going to be a hot commodity, and I know the Sabres probably aren't his first destination, and they're going to have to overpay for him. <clears throat> but this seems like a chance to right a wrong that was letting go of Drury. Chris Drury. Yeah. Uh, you don't get a chance to sign a captain every day. I know he's 35 years old or whatever, but he had a very productive season last year. His leadership is evident in every game he plays. In the handshake, he made sure to tell Dustin Brown that he w- didn't appreciate yeah. the knee-to-knee hit. Uh, maybe that's not the classiest thing, but it showed that he's going to stand up for his teammates. The Sabres need scoring. He provides that. Uh, he would be the perfect Buffalo Sabre right now, other than the fact that he's not a center. But So I'm going to say the Sabres uh, sign Shane Doan. Like I said, they're going to hope over- you're right. they're gonna have to overpay him, but he'd, he'd be great. I went down the same road, and I'm going to say that the Penguins are going to finally get somebody and land uh, Simon. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's not the boldest thing because you might describe Pittsburgh as a front runner for him right now. I know there's been some rumors out there, but hey, that's what I did with Suter, and it the, didn't work. Yeah, and the reality of the decision is he might go to the KHL. Uh, he might. I've heard rumors that he might come to Buffalo. I've heard all kinds of things, so I think. As of right now, anywhere you say is bold because 
who knows everything right. that everything that's out there is just rumor anyway. Right. So to say Pittsburgh is a favorite, that's just because Eklund said it was an E four <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Right, so right. Uh, I'm just gonna say that the Penguins aren't gonna come up empty after trading Jordan Stahl. They're gonna get somebody, and he makes a lot of sense because they already have the two great centers. He's a sniper, and they have Neil to go with. Seemingly Malkin seems like those two kind of go right. together, and so why not give Crosby, uh, Crosby a uh, tool too? So I'll say that uh, Semin will go to Pittsburgh. Sounds good. All right, so that's it for the sportscasters today. Again, you can uh, go to our website www.sports-casters.com. Well, I wanted to mention that Apple has a standalone podcast app now. Okay. Um, so it makes it a lot easier if you want to listen to us through iTunes and you have an iPhone or an iPad. Grab the new app. It's simply called Podcasts, I believe, and it's put out by Apple. It's real easy to find in the iTunes store, and it is a lot easier to find both of our podcasts and listen to them on those devices if that's what you're interested in. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, If you have that app already or if you don't and you want an easy way to listen to the show on an Apple smartphone or tablet, that would be a great way to do it. So I just wanted to mention that. Thanks to Jack McCollum. Uh, thanks to Gary Smith and thanks to Ben Ryder. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.